0: Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC.
1: This is the Simi Sarah Show on demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the
2: Radio Player app. Bit of an etiquette debate for you. How many of you out there went to a wedding this summer? It's kind of coming to the end of wedding season, right? Several of our producers, people here, went to multiple weddings this year. Bridal showers, everything included. And in several cases, there's been no thank you card. We're talking about things that took place months ago. In fact, in one case, still waiting for a card from the bridal shower. Hot question of the day. Today in 2019, Are thank you notes mandatory? nice but not expected, or old-fashioned? SimiSarah 980 or at CKNW on Twitter. Call our buzz line with your take. You can email me, Simi at cknw.com. Well, it may not get as much attention as it was getting a week ago, but RCMP still very much focused on the manhunt in northern Manitoba as the search for Briar Schmigelski and Cam McLeod continues. Now, the two triple murder suspects have not been seen, at least officially. In more than two weeks now. Now there's been an array of potential sightings, even in Ontario, where police there are now investigating, but nothing has actually been confirmed for sure. So the search continues in the area around Gillam. Police have now set up a roadblock in the town of Sundance, which they hadn't done before. And yesterday, as you've been hearing in the news, they were busy searching the Nelson River. So where do things stand today? Let's find out. Joe Scarpelli joins us now, global news reporter. He's in Gillam, has an update for us. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, how's it going? Good, thank you. So where are things at today? What is the search like?
3: Well, uh, today we're, uh, I'm actually at the same spot I was at yesterday, about uh, 45 minutes northeast of Gillum. I, I got here not too long ago, and again, for a second day in a row, uh, the RCMP uh, have set up a roadblock. And from what I'm told, this is extremely rare, unlike the check stops. Check stops have been... Uh, have been uh, uh, steady uh, uh, around this this part of uh, northern Manitoba, but roadblocks, I'm told, is is extremely rare, and uh, it, it's worth mentioning that where we are now, where police are uh, are are searching just past the roadblock, is close to where uh, Spigelski and McLeod's uh, uh, torched Rav Four was found a couple weeks ago. So we poli- we haven't been able to get in touch with police. Um, we, we we don't know if. Um, if they maybe found a clue or, you know, what's drawing them to this area two days in a row right. and, uh, blocking off the road. But, so we're still waiting to hear back on that.
2: Uh, yeah. Has it been tough to get information from the RCMP? Cause it sounds like with the search kind of cut back a little bit, they haven't had as many kind of press conferences and updates about it.
3: Yeah, it has been uh, difficult and, uh, there are, there's no spokesperson, uh, here in, uh, Northern Manitoba. So everything is uh, going through the detachment in uh in winnipeg so uh, there hasn't been much communication uh often being referred to uh to their twitter account and of course officers on the on the ground here are uh, are very uh, tight-lipped
2: and is there any comment at all about what's been going on in
3: ontario here joe you know that hasn't come up since uh, I, I uh since the uh the search went underwater we haven't heard much about, uh, about any uh, sightings in Ontario. I haven't around here, at least. I know uh, when last week when RCMP said they were scaling back the search in Gillum, it, um, uh, the, the focus was going elsewhere. But ever since the underwater uh, rescue team arrived here, yeah. it seems like all the attention is back here.
2: Yeah, what's it been like for the community though? Because it must be hard to try to get back to normal with the stopping and starting, and you know the the spotlight and the not spotlight.
0: Oh,
3: from the from the time I I, I stepped on the airplane uh, until now, everybody run into everybody talk to at the convenience store, walking around town. Everybody is wondering where these two are. You know, there's a lot of speculation. Are they are they alive? Are they are are they dead? Are they? Um, Are they still in Manitoba? But everybody wants to know if people are asking, is it safe to go out and fish? Can we go hunt? Uh, Some people I'm talking to are saying, we're still still locking our doors and our uh, vehicles, and that's something that you don't typically do around here.
2: Yeah, it sounds like then from what you've described, Joe, police are kind of broadening their search a little bit, right? From the surveillance video at those fast food restaurants and places like Moose Jaw and, and going to other towns, but they're not really explaining
3: why they're taking those steps. Yeah, we're getting these, uh, you know, these, these, these little bits of, of information, but yeah, exactly. Not a lot of, uh, 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 they're not really expanding on that. Not giving us uh, a lot of information on, uh, you know, uh, behind that little uh, tidbit of information that, uh, that, that are coming to light. So it, it's been difficult, but uh, we're hoping, I, 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 have, I haven't heard anything, but we're hoping we will get something today. We, As we usually do, get at least one piece of information uh, per day, but uh, so far, um, haven't heard anything.
2: How visible is the police presence,
3: Joe, in the area that you're in? Right now, all I can, it's, I'm at the roadblock and there's one RCMP truck blocking us off. I know this morning I saw, so I, I can't see them now. I can't see them at work right now. This morning I, saw, I was uh, at the uh, RCMP detachment around 6 a.m. local time. And uh, I saw about three uh, three trucks full of, um, of officers get in to come out and search. So, Depending on where you are, you will see the helicopter, but I don't think it's as it, it, they're, they're as much of a presence as there was last week, let's say, before RCMP had said they were uh, scaling back the search.
2: Right, okay. So it must be, yeah, for, for residents around there, they must just think like, okay, how, how soon is this going to be over with now?
3: Exactly. Uh, they, they, they want things to go back to normal because, they, they, like, they are, they're getting tired of this, and... You know, uh, a couple I spoke to yesterday, after they heard the news about the RCMP scaling back and then possible sightings, none of which have been confirmed, in Ontario, they're kind of, kind of, uh, you know, uh, feeling a little relieved. But this weekend, it's just, it it seems like we're back to square one almost.
2: Yeah, it certainly sounds like that. Listen, Joe, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. That is Joe Scarpelli, a global news reporter who is in the area around Gillam. Well, a tense situation in the northern part of India, right on the border between India and Pakistan, is becoming even more tense. And that's because the government of India has moved to revoke the part of their constitution that was giving Indian-administered Kashmir special status. You may have heard about this or seen the headlines about this in the last 48 hours or so. In that part of the world, this is a very big deal. Lots of concern about this and what this could. Mean in relationships between Pakistan and India. To talk more about this, we're joined by Ankit Panda now, who's a director of research for Diplomat Risk Intelligence. Ankit, thank you so much for joining us.
4: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
2: How big of a concern is this? What India has done.
4: as far as as far as it being a concern, I would say that we're still waiting to see how the Kashmir region is going to react. Uh, a lot of the people that live there have been put under a total information embargo. So it's very likely that you and I know more about what has happened than many people living in Kashmir do right now. That said, the seriousness of what the Indians have done is uh, really shouldn't be understated. It's, it's, it's historic. It revises really one of the last lingering questions over the unity of India from the 20th century, um, but it also does raise a great deal of uncertainty as to what is going to happen next in terms of the implementation of the abrogation of this constitutional provision that had given Kashmir special status within the Indian Union. And of course, we're waiting to see how the international community, in particular Pakistan and China, both of whom also have claims in Kashmir, are going to react in the coming days.
2: Right. Okay. So when it comes, maybe for a little background here, a little history there, Anki, can you explain to people why this area is so contested?
4: Sure. So um, at, the, at the end of the 1940s, in 1947, when the British left South Asia, uh, the British Raj was partitioned into two countries, the um, Muslim state of Pakistan, an Islamic Republic, which was explicitly created out of um, the territories that we now know today as Pakistan and Bangladesh for uh, anybody in this, in South Asia who identified as Muslim could have migrated to one of these new countries to live in. And India, by the meantime, was not created as a Hindu state. It was created as a secular democratic republic. Of course, what happened was that uh, when India was created, uh, the status of many so-called princely states that existed around the region had to be negotiated between the government in New Delhi and many of these princely states. And Kashmir at the time just happened to be one of these princely states, it was ruled by a Hindu king, but the population was primarily Muslim. And that remains to be the case today. It's the only Muslim majority region in India. So as part of that negotiation uh, that occurred uh, in the late 1940s between Delhi and and Kashmir, uh, the agreement that was effectively reached was this constitutional article that would grant the region a great deal of autonomy to manage its own affairs. India would manage Kashmir's foreign relations and defense, but really the Kashmiris would have a high degree of of autonomy over the rest of their affairs. And that changed over the decades. Uh, And now, finally, that article has been scrapped in its entirety. And what that means is that the Indian government now uh, in New Delhi will directly rule Kashmir But more seriously, there's a demographic concern here. Uh, The Kashmiris, a part of their special status, included protections for who was allowed to buy property and settle in Kashmir. Nobody from the rest of India, from South India, East India, uh, the Hindu majority parts of the country, was able to move permanently to Kashmir, purchase property and live there. Now, with this constitutional article being abrogated, that's possible, and many Kashmiris are now fearful that this will mean that the unique democratic, uh, demographic character of that region is going right. to begin transforming over the next decades.
2: And we know from the history of you know, that region between India and Pakistan and partition and all of that, that areas that are kind of Hindu-majority, Muslim-majority, that has long been a, a flashpoint.
4: Yeah. So in um, in Kashmir, though, it really uh, hasn't been on the basis of the Kashmiri Muslims uh, attacking Hindus, per se. Uh, the the struggle that we've seen in the past decade or so, um, and, and really you could trace this back to the end of the 1980s in a way, uh, is really to do with discontent at the Indian government's application of heavy-handed tactics in the region. So Kashmir is one of the most highly securitized parts of India, or indeed anywhere in the world. The Indian Army and Indian paramilitary forces keep a massive presence there, and part of that is to keep the disaffected Kashmiri population, primarily the youth, Um, under control, so to speak, and to to avoid unrest. And uh, there's really been a major spike in unrest since 2016. I think the Indian government's decision uh, this week is really something that's been building over the last few years. Of course, we should also talk about the fact that the party currently ruling India, the Bharatiya Janta Party, is a Hindu nationalist party. Uh, If you go back decades, uh, that party and its ideological predecessors have really seen this article, the constitutional article, and the special status that Kashmir enjoyed within the republic as a bit of an aberration. And they've really been out to take care of it. And of course, in May, we just saw an election in India that gave this party the largest mandate that it's seen in its history. So I think they're really cashing in on the political mandate here.
2: Yeah, that was my next question that I was wondering, why now? Like, why did they think this? And so this do you think is a direct result of them feeling buoyed and confident by their election result?
4: Yeah, I think it is. I mean, we could look at the last time that the BJP was in power in the early 2000s. Of course, then they had a coalition government. And in parliamentary systems, when you're in a coalition, depending on the strength of your coalition partners, your room for maneuver is limited. So something like this that's hugely controversial and sort of a nationally important decision, um, the BJP was sort of uh, hesitant to undertake. Of course, that was the time that India conducted its nuclear tests and broke out as a nuclear power. So it's not that they didn't take significant steps at the time, but they decided to focus their energies elsewhere. The Kashmir issue was left unaddressed at the time. This time, the BJP is so dominant nationally, politically, that they can right. absolutely absorb this. And what we've seen actually after the decision is that many opposition parties have actually supported this move, right? This is this is more to do with Indian nationalism writ large rather than Hindu nationalism per se. Of course, it does get the Hindu nationalists on board, but uh, other parts of the country, including uh, regional parties from South India, have supported the move.
2: Right. So what does the rest of the world say about this? Because this could really change things in that region.
4: It could, and it has already. Um, The United States put out a statement. We were pretty... tepid in what we said. We said that we noted the actions, but uh, that we basically wanted the situation in the region to remain under control. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, Washington, of course, right now is in a bit of a strange place with regard to the level of expertise and the level of staffing related to South Asia in general. And most of the efforts of the region are focused on Afghanistan and Pakistan, where we're trying to secure a deal with the Taliban. So Kashmir really hasn't been at the top of the radar. Of course, we had a wake up call earlier this year in February when India and Pakistan almost went to war, uh, again, over Kashmir. So um, that's where the Americans are. Yeah. And the the two other countries to really watch for are China and Pakistan. And both of them have put out statements reacting to what the Indians did. And the Pakistanis were predictably upset and they cited sort of international law and old UN Security Council resolutions, as they always do. Um, but it's not the Pakistani civilian government's reaction that we should really be concerned about. It's more about what the Pakistani military... Yeah which is really in control of the country's sort of national security policy might do in the next days or weeks. And they have several options there. Um, So so we'll have to wait and see if if the the Pakistanis decide to ramp up tensions. As for China, um, they have a separate dispute with India in Kashmir, and they are also treating this with a high level of seriousness. We don't know exactly what Beijing is going to do here. Uh, It could simply be that we see a chill in India-China relations, but there's no serious uh, escalation along the border. India and China, of course, haven't fought a border war since 1962. They've had some standoffs and skirmishes in the meantime. So the nature right. of the dispute there is less serious.
2: But a lot's changed since then. Listen, Ankit, thank you so much for your
4: time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me.
2: That was fascinating. That's Ankit Panda, Director of Research for Diplomat Risk Intelligence. Well, today, you might be a little bit worried about your retirement funds, given what we've seen happening in the markets over the last 24 hours. Now, our main stock index here in Canada is down sharply after markets reopened today. American markets had plunged yesterday, and that was because of rising tensions between the United States and China. We'll get more on that in just a moment. But just to let you know where things are right now, the, S&P, the S&PTSX Composite Impact, Impact Index – was down 220 points from Friday's close. That's a pretty big and broad-based decline. There, the Canadian dollar trading at 75.62 cents U.S. That is just up slightly from the 75.61 cents U.S. on Friday. But let's talk more about where the markets are at right now, with the help of Robert Levy, CKW Business Analyst. Good morning, Robert.
0: Hi, Simi. Good morning.
2: How's that roller coaster ride doing there for you today? Bit of whiplash?
0: Oh, it's an exciting one. You know, an exciting one because we're seeing a lot of, you know, changes and trend changes in the markets from where they've been going over the last couple months or even years. We had the biggest, you know, one day sell off in global markets in about the last 18 months yesterday. Uh, you know, maybe a lot of people in BC didn't notice it because we had that holiday Monday, but we still had U.S. trading yesterday. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard sometimes when you talk these numbers because, you know, 200 points, 300 points sounds like a big yeah. move, but you know, sometimes normalizing and, you know, looking percentage terms like the uh, Dow Jones industrial average in the U.S. had the biggest uh, one day sell off of the year and it was down over three percent. And it's, you know, as you said, roller coaster ride bounced back a little bit today. But still, you know, these outsized moves that we're not used to as markets seem to fall a lot faster than they go up.
2: Yeah. So what happened in the States yesterday then, Robert, like what prompted that huge sell off that they
0: had? I think this is investors digesting the next phase of sort of the escalations we're seeing in this trade war between the U.S. and China. Uh, you, the end of last week, we had President Trump announce new tariffs, new measures on China because negotiations weren't going as fast as he liked uh, with coming to a trade deal between the U.S. and China. And I also think part of that was motivated by the fact that the Fed underdelivered when they cut interest rates last week. They only did a 25 basis point cut. And they made it sound like things were improving with China. So, you know, Trump being that, I heard a great line today, very tactical in the short term, very bad in terms of a long-term negotiator. But he is tactical somewhat in the short term, and the Fed underdelivered. So he said, we're going to intensify the trade war with China. So, you know, that was one factor. And then the answer from China at the beginning of this week, that they let their currency depreciate over 7 yuan to the U.S. dollar. That, that is very significant because it signals the markets, that they're going to use their currency now as a potential weapon in this ongoing trade war. And
2: they're they're clearly digging in, too, right? Like, for a while there, it seemed like, okay, maybe they're going to capitulate on some of these demands, and now it sounds like they're just saying no.
0: Exactly right. You know, and it's hard to strategize, you know, how this trade war is going to continue to play out. All it's done is basically... Taking a chunk out of the global economy as these two com- uh, countries, superpowers, you know, throw tariffs back and forth between one another. No one's winning in this game, and you know, some people are saying, you know, a trade war with the U.S. and China. There's no situation that works out well for China that makes them better off than they were before. So that, in a sense, could be a hard pill to swallow. And maybe they hope they outlast the U.S. or at least for now, outlast the current U.S. president, who's very, you know, bombastic in his natures, but. Maybe he's not around in 2020, and they have someone easier to negotiate with in Washington.
2: Right. So then by China manipulating their currency, what does that do? That makes their products, even though there's tariffs on them, still cheaper in the United
0: States. Exactly. So what it allows them to do, basically, is boost their exports and and maybe mitigate some of the effects of the, the tariffs that are then imposed on their products. So it's a way to make things you know a a little better off for them but uh, at the same time it doesn't come without consequences for them this is now an 11 year low uh for the chinese yuan against the u.s dollar and we see in these periods when their currency falls to these levels uh one thing is capital flight and you know we know about that here in vancouver and and in canada where you know money is leaving uh china and going to other markets around the world so what they're investing in maybe housing but it's not staying in China. And, you know, the other factor with the weakened currency is it's prompted market volatility of their own over there when they let their currency devalue. So they see their own financial market volatility, which hurts, you know, consumer confidence like, like we see here when we, you know, see markets fall a couple percent and begin to get a little concerned or worried.
2: Right. Well, this was a lot, though. And so should we be worried, Robert? Like, you know, when we get our quarterly updates on our portfolios, like, should we be worried?
0: it's it's very hard i think to take that short-term look at the markets and and to give it context you know we've had u.s markets that have rallied you know before this up to friday we're up about 17 18 percent on the year so that's almost two years worth of the gains for some people and what they expect of returns so to give back three percent uh you you know i wouldn't be worried in one day you know we can expect some follow-through because i think we're in a period of heightened volatility again it's been pretty calm for the last while but depending on how these negotiations go between the U.S. and China and what, you know, measures are taken next, it could definitely prompt some market instability over the short term. But I think what President Trump's been doing is trying to force the Fed's hand and uh, really jawbone the Fed in terms of how their policy should be set. And he's pushing them to cut interest rates a few more times this year. So if the Fed delivers for the market, uh, which, you know, they have Opportunities to talk about it over the next couple of weeks, that might calm investor concerns a little bit.
2: Right. So we heard that how this morning in Toronto markets are down here as well. What's going on here then? Is that just a response to what happened yesterday?
0: Yeah, exactly right. And the fact that, you know, we were closed, parts of Canada were open yesterday, but we were closed in Ontario and we were closed in BC. So, you know, that's why you've seen the U.S. market stabilize a little bit. They're up about eight-tenths of a percent after falling 3% yesterday. Uh, but the TSX, you know, a little catch up readjusting because the, we had that steep sell-off in the U.S. market yesterday and we weren't open for trading.
2: Okay, so then you think things are going to settle down?
0: Hey. It could be a bumpy August, but, you know, there's, there's a couple key events on the calendar at the end of this month. One is Fed Chair Jay Powell, you know, speaking in Jackson Hole, and that's a key speech that people are going to see what the Fed's going to do there. You know, it's, it's almost uh, apropos or similar to a couple years ago when everyone was hanging on every word that Ben Bernanke or then his predecessor Janet Yellen was saying. And people are going to be watching the U.S. Central Bank again. It considered, you know, the global central bank because their policy, you know, dictates what goes on around the global economy to see what their actions are going to be going into the fall.
2: Thanks, Jimmy. We continue to brace ourselves. That is Robert Levy, our CKNW business analyst, talking about the roller coaster ride that the markets have been on. On Friday, when it seemed like everybody's minds was about what was going on on the long weekend or the upcoming long weekend, we had a pretty scary situation, though, developing in South Surrey. That's where the shooting happened at that uh, Star- Starbucks drive through uh, where we now know it looks like a high-profile member of the Hells Angels was gunned down. Two people were arrested. And, in fact, they made their first appearance in court just this morning. So we wanted to get more information on that. So joining us now is Global
5: News senior reporter Janet Brown. Hi, Janet. Good afternoon, Simeon. It was a fairly uneventful court appearance. It was very uh, quick as well in provincial court in Surrey this morning for, as you say, the two young men charged with uh, first-degree murder after Friday's fatal shooting at that strip mall in South Surrey, uh, 20-year-old Calvin Powery Hooker and 21-year-old Nathan DeYoung uh, both appeared in court by, it was a really grainy video, very difficult to see Simi, They came to the courtroom uh, via the video link from where they're being held and the TV screen was primarily facing the judge and the lawyers in the courtroom so it was very difficult for those of us who were in the gallery trying to get a glimpse of these two who have been charged. Uh, We sort of had to sit at the end of the row and sort of lean forward. And most of the people in the gallery were reporters Simi, And um, their appearance on the video was very, very brief. And they really didn't say anything. The judge actually did the speaking most of the time. And he told them, quote, I strongly suggest you retain and contact counsel for your next court appearance. And of course, counsel is lawyers. And they both said, yes, we will. And that was it. (laughs) So it lasted perhaps less than two minutes. Now, their next court appearance is in three weeks from now, set for August 27th, and it likely will be another very short appearance, and it will be again by video. The judge said that in the courtroom. Um, What was interesting, when we exited the courtroom, uh, there were quite a few members of the gang enforcement unit milling about in the hallway, and I approached one of them and asked them, hey, what are you doing here? What are you watching for? And, And I was told by one of them, well, you know, we're just here to keep an eye on everybody and make sure everybody's safe. Um, you never know who might show up. So it, it was oh. good to see them for the safety of everybody, not only in the courtroom, but also in the courthouse. But, um, yeah, as I say, it was fairly right. uneventful, the two appearing, as I say, by video and very, very short, and they will be back again in court on August the 27th.
2: Okay, so you mentioned that about the security and the police officers there. Maybe we should just explain to people why that is. Like, once we found out who the victim was on Friday, it seems like everything changed.
5: Certainly did. Uh, We were told, and we haven't really got any um, confirmation of this, really, uh, by the police, but we were told... Uh, by the police. Yes, indeed, the man shot and killed was 43-year-old Suminder Greywall. Graywall. Uh, he was gunned down. It was a lovely Friday morning, as everybody remembers, 9.20 in the morning. He was in a drive-thru getting a coffee at Starbucks, and he was gunned down, uh, shot and killed inside a blue Dodge Viper in the drive-thru of a Starbucks. And of course... That is a very busy mall, yeah. the South Point Exchange Mall. There's Tim Hortons, there's a grocery store, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, I mean, as you say, can you imagine everybody going about their business that morning? There's a bank right beside the Starbucks, going to the bank, excited about the weekend, thinking about what they're planning to do that day, that afternoon, and then gunfire broke, uh, broke out. And I talked to one gentleman uh, in the parking lot that day, and I think we talked about this on Friday yeah. too, Simi. His wife was inside the Starbucks, and she heard about five or six shots r- ring out. She immediately phoned her husband screaming and yelling and you know he doesn't can you imagine getting that phone call well yeah Not how if helpless wife, you would life feel yeah. in danger and yeah so it was a terrible situation but uh, as we later heard as the day unfolded mr graywall uh was a member of the hard side hell's angels in surrey so the question going forward now is uh, are police concerned are, are they worried fearful about any retaliation in in, in the days to come uh, by people involved in gang activity. So um, I'm hoping to speak to somebody from the gang enforcement unit this afternoon and and hear what they have to say so that I can inform the public. And uh, yeah, it's definitely something to have on the radar and be aware of for sure.
2: And how were these two caught uh, in the chaos of everything that was happening? How were they apprehended on Friday?
5: Well, that's another story, Simi. Um, we ha- we were told by the police, by IHIT, Surrey RCMP, that they were apprehended quite quickly following that shooting. Uh, but sometimes, you know, sometimes the best information comes from witnesses on the scene. And we were told that after that shooting, it's a very difficult area to enter and exit that little mall. It sort of It's not directly in and out. The road sort of curves in and curves out, and there's a couple of stop signs. So it's not easy access in or out and apparently uh, when the accused uh, were fleeing they hit a number number of curbs because of course they're speeding to get out of there uh, they crashed into a couple of cars apparently they crashed into a building somewhere along the way and apparently they blew out a tire according to a witness and um, this is what prevented the vehicle from proceeding any further uh, they exited the vehicle at that point apparently and were running away on foot and that's that's how the uh, police moved in and, and were able to make a couple of arrests. Um, I, I was told that one of uh, the uh, suspects was arrested on 152nd near about 96th and another was arrested in the Newton area and um, don't know if any weapons uh, were right. found at all. Um, but do that's we know where they're from we know right now? Yeah, do we
2: know where they're from? Anything like that?
5: Come up, I don't in- know that either. I'm sorry, simmy. Okay, um, no,
2: no problem. I know it sounded like it was pretty brief today, but clearly lots of interest, wouldn't you say in this story?
5: Oh, gosh, absolutely, and, and especially going forward, and, um, you know, if, if, it, if it ever gets to trial, it'll be interesting to hear what sort of details come out, too, but obviously, the bigger picture, people are concerned about gang warfare in the Metro Vancouver area, and as I say, you know, possible retaliation going forward. We're, you know, a lot of people are concerned about that. The RCMP are concerned about that, obviously, the Gang Enforcement Unit, so it will be interesting to hear what they have to say. Hopefully, I'll be able to provide that information later this afternoon.
2: We hope- Hope so. Thank you so much for your time, Janet. Thank you, Simi. That is Global News senior reporter Janet Brown with the latest on that case. See, Alanis knows how to say thank you. She wrote a whole song about it, although I know she's being sarcastic for most of it. But we are talking about the art of the thank you note today. This all got started as a discussion that we were having at work this morning, hours before the show actually started, because we were talking about weddings that we'd been to, bridal showers that we'd been to in the lot, in 2019, and how many of us had actually received thank you notes as a result of that nobody's been to more weddings and showers recently than our next guest who is our producer Claire Allen you go to a lot of weddings
1: this year has been particularly busy Simi (laughs) but you're at that age that's right. you're 30 probably
2: all your friends everybody
1: you know is getting married or having a kid or having a child that's right that's the way it goes Uh, how do you feel about thank you notes Growing up, my mom always told me to write a thank you note to the point where I would like sigh, like just be, I didn't want to do it It as so much work when I was younger, writing a thank you note. And, but I'm glad she did. I'm, I'm very glad that she did because she made me do it. She would make me sit down and write out a thank you card. If I got gifts from friends for a birthday, from my grandma and grandpa, from my family members, from my dad's friends, from everybody. I've received several thank you notes from you. So I can
2: attest to the fact that this is a habit that has stayed with you.
1: Yes, exactly. And I think it's nice. When I get a thank you card, I, um, I really appreciate it. I like getting cards in the mail. And I think a thank you card is a nice way to show someone that you really did appreciate the gift or or the gesture, or what have you. So I think I think it's the polite way to go, and I think you never go, go wrong with being polite. So
2: you're going to go with the mandatory option on our First, hot question of the
1: 100% day? 100% mandatory. No ifs, ands, or buts.
2: Okay, so you're kind of of the age group that we're talking about here. Sadly. From,
1: <laughs> the people that you know, Claire, your social circle, mm-hmm. does everybody feel the way that you do? I'm going to say that my friends. Sorry, everybody. They do not write thank you notes. I might be Claire the only one well under the bus, I know so That's what happened. No one I know writes thank you notes. Nobody, nobody my age writes thank you notes. I know a lot of really? people older than me that write thank you notes, but I, I have, I don't think I've ever actually, I might maybe just one thank you note I've received from someone my age. That's it. It's oh, not popular. That's
2: not good. And so what, what do you think happens? Like when you're sending a thank you note to them, do you think it ever occurs to them? Like or they just go, "Wow, oh, Claire's crazy. She yeah, sent a thank you note. Like,
1: oh, it's old-fashioned, Claire. Why is she sending me this note? Who sends mail?" But I think it's a nice thing to do, and I don't plan on phasing sending no, out thank you notes out of my life.
2: Uh, well, you know, you should know that most people agree with you yes. on our hot question of the day today. We've been asking this online, which you can vote, Simi Sarah nine eighty or at CKNW. Fifty nine percent of the people who we asked believe that it's still mandatory. I, as you heard, I agree. Okay, 32% are saying it's nice, but it's not expected. That's I think that's that school of thought or that you're giving a gift mm-hmm. and you should just give the gift freely, not expect anything in return.
1: But is it wrong to expect someone to say to you, wow, this gift is so great. You you've thought about me and I really appreciate it. Is that selfish, Simi?
2: No, I I agree with you. I think it should be mandatory, but mm-hmm. I, I know that some people have said, listen, let it go. Just be generous with the with the gift. Because I had a number of people who emailed me and said that that's, you know, they have felt that way or somebody has told them that they should feel that way. No. I uh, think
1: that is allowing for Bad behavior. Poor manners. No manners. (laughs) (laughs) She's not judgy. Uh,
2: 9% of people on our survey believe it is just old-fashioned. And I'll say that's a sizable number. That is a sizable number. 9% of people saying forget it. Yeah. That's too old-fashioned. I know.
1: And I I just don't understand that. I don't... Where is the harm? Simi, what's the harm? There's
2: never any harm. And that's... And many people agree with you on that. There's never any harm in being extra polite...
1: Extra kind. I will say, though, recently, I went to a nice uh, event over on the island that someone's mom sent uh, through for us, and... I'm going to say, I forgot to send a thank you note. And so I felt so bad. You forgot to send a thank you note for thank you for inviting you and for allowing me thank to come to this? Thank you for hosting such a beautiful event. They obviously went through a lot of trouble. It was, a, it, was a, uh, it was a bridal shower. And so I thought that this person went through a lot of trouble. And I wanted to follow up with a note. And I get it. Some people are busy. People get busy and they yeah. forget that I've got to send that thing. And that was, I actually feel so bad about that. Emily Post would tell me. Okay. Claire, bad Bad call. You took a gift though, right? Yeah, I did. Did you get a
2: thank you card for the gift? No. I wouldn't worry too much then. I wouldn't worry. Let's yes, run right. through this. I know we've got a list of kind of when you should and maybe you don't need to send mm-hmm. a thank you card. Like shower gifts, I think those are kind of mandatory. You should send, if it, if somebody throws you a bridal shower, literally it is just an event to get gifts. Yeah.
1: So you should definitely send you a should thank definitely you. should definitely follow up with a card. Yeah. hundred percent. I agree, Simi. Wedding gifts, you and I agree on that one. People come to your wedding and they give you a gift. I think it's nice to say, thanks for coming. It was great seeing you. And thank you for X, the toaster, whatever. Tusters. I love it. Those it's are great. The
2: days. What, what's the timeline for that? Because I know that Emily Post used to say you had one year. The first year was like very flexible, but I don't think that's, that a stands year? anymore. Yeah, that's what are not you the...
1: doing for a whole year that you can't pick up a, pe- a pen and a paper?
2: Well, okay, clearly you don't think that, but I'm i just would just say...
1: the school of thought used to be you had a year. Wow, that's really lengthy. I would say you've got mo- one month, maybe I'll one give you two. month? Tip. What else are you doing? I don't know, a honeymoon maybe. Some, but people don't go on their honeymoons automatically, like right after know. the wedding what has, anymore. What has changed? So much has changed. You can but write I them on the plane, trying. easy. Oh, Just boy. write them out while you're going on that international honeymoon. What about three months? Is that? That's t- too much. Too much. I think one to two months. Man, you are harsh. I'm also just not a huge fan of weddings. (laughs) I think that like maybe... Says the girl who's engaged to be married, by the way. It's, uh, I think, you know, people go out of their way. Sometimes people have weddings on a long weekend. People are giving up their time, giving up their money to come to your event. The least you can do is send a thank you note saying... Thank you. You think one month after the wedding, you should
2: have your thank you cards in the mail? I'll
1: give you two months if, if need oh, be. Aren't
2: you so generous? I think it's a little bit more flexible than that. I think if I get one within six months, I'm happy. Wow. I'm,
1: yeah, I'm happy. I'm I happy must with that. just be mind blowing to you because I send you a thank you note right, oh, right away. away. I know, right <laughs> away. She
2: is my. I, I always tell people, look at this. She sent another one. This is so impressive. Um, okay. What about?
1: You think any time you send a handwritten message, that sends a good. Vibe. Yeah, totally. So on this list from Emily Post, they also said gifts received during an illness or condolence notes or gifts that you should follow up with a thank you card. And you and I discussed this, that that one, there might be some leeway there. I think so too. I had
2: an email um, from someone who was saying that after, after they made it a charitable donation, like, you know, when someone passes away yeah. and they say in lieu of flowers, please donate to mm-hmm. this person had made several times donations and had not received a thank you card and was put off by that. But I, I'm on the issue of funerals and deaths. I think everybody gets a buy grief.
1: You know, I think
2: it, it I may, think it gives you a buy. I'm I, sorry. I think,
1: it, I think it like clouds things, and and you shouldn't you shouldn't hold people to the same standard if they are going through a grieving period.
2: I do. Also, she's if you're donating money because of someone that you knew and has now passed away, are you doing it because you need a thank you, or are you doing it in memory
1: of somebody? And therefore, just do it. I think. That when we spoke about that one year period to send a thank you note, I think that could apply to the condolence notes or gifts during an illness. Because I think that maybe maybe if somebody made a big donation in your loved one's name or got a bench or something, I think it is nice to say how much that meant to you that you thought about my loved one during this time and you thought this was the right thing to do. I think it's nice but I think that it's such a difficult time for people that you should give some leeway. Yeah, don't have you know? Don't have my don't like, expectations <laughs> on other people. But I think that's the one time where I could understand the one year um, time limit.
2: Really? Yeah, because uh, you're right. Emily Post on her list, and we went through this list, mm-hmm. does say that you should send a, a written thank you to people who send a personal note or flowers or a donation in case of a condolence. Flowers a little much because you're going to get a lot of flowers yeah, probably. So you're supposed to send a thank you note to every person who sent you flowers. And we're not talking about like usual stuff.
1: This is if there's been a death right. in the family. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Emily posts seems a little strict, but I think that that I, I, I could see the argument for certain things there, like a donation. People donate to get a bench. I've done that before when someone's passed away um, in my friend group. That's nice. Yeah, and it's nice. And I think that if it were me, I would probably write something but I don't want to put any of those uh, expectations on another family.
2: My, I was
1: thinking back, I was having a little bit of a memory
2: there. My dear friend, Dave, Gary, and I used to talk about this all the time because, you know, if you, I had dinner at their house, I'd send a thank you. If he had dinner at our house, they'd send a thank you. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's just what you do. But then we used to wonder, like, where do you draw the line of the thank yous? Oh, thank you for the thank you. Oh, thank you for sending your thank you. I
1: really appreciate that. Like, where, where does the where thank you stop? stop Claire? Where does it stop? I don't know. I mean, okay, what about this? If you got a thank you email or a thank you text, would that suffice in your mind? For a for gift. What? For a gift. Let's say yes. you got me a birthday gift and I hit you up on the text. Yo, Simi, thanks. Okay, all, I know you would. <laughs> <laughs> You would never do that, first of all.
2: I think any form of... I'm not a stickler for the handwritten note. Right. I think any acknowledgement, if it's a phone call, if it's a text message, if it's an email, if it's a handwritten note, any of that is appreciated. Mm-hmm. I, that's my personal take on it. Okay, though.
1: so you just want the acknowledgement. I, it's not that I want the acknowledgement.
2: I just think the acknowledgement is nice. I don't demand it. I can be a little bit flexible on these things. But I think if it's a big thing, like a wedding, a shower, mm-hmm. a new baby arriving yeah. and you bring lots of gifts over, that kind of stuff should be some kind of acknowledgement for sure. I want the paper. Yeah, See <laughs> your face. Sure, face was just like, I don't believe anything you say right now and you're wrong. <laughs> That's what she was telling me. Uh, so you think in all cases it should be the
1: written card. You've got the cards that have the C on them too, like for your initial. I have invested in being polite. No, um, <laughs> But I want to, you know open my mailbox, take out the letter, look at the stamp, go, oh my gosh, it's so nice, see my name in ink, rip open the envelope, open the card, look at it, and put it on my mantle. It's so nice. Wow, how old are you? A hundred. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, uh, we're going to ask about this. We've got lots of calls on our buzz line, right? Yes, we do. And we'd love to hear from people as well if they want to call in right now at 604-280-9898. What are th- where do you stand yeah. on thank you cards? What,
2: what's the, Who's right here? Because like, I'm relaxed about it. I think it's, yes, you should do it. But Claire wants it written in yes. paper with an envelope, licked in the mail, the whole thing. I'm saying you can email somebody, you can call them. And I think that suffices as a, a thoughtful thank you. Now, let's talk about another public safety issue, and this has to do with online child sexual abuse. Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodell says that provincial and municipal police forces are going to receive $15 million to combat the exploitation of children online. The Liberal government has committed about $22 million over three years to that cause, and that was in this year's federal budget, and now they're detailing how the majority of the spending is going to go to local police internet child exploitation units. The rest of the money is going to go towards raising awareness, uh, strengthening the judicial system, and engaging with online companies to make sure their platforms do not host child pornography or any kind of related content. So he held a press conference about this this morning, and he said that the funding will work to combat this growing problem.
0: This expansion of our national strategy recognizes that technology is increasingly facilitating the easy, borderless access to vast volumes of abhorrent images. They are shared globally. Investigations are increasingly complex. Awareness-raising is critical in a fully collaborative effort. No child should ever become a victim of sexual exploitation of any kind.
2: And by the way, Ralph Goodell also says that police reported incidents of child pornography in Canada increased by 288% between 2017 and 20, or 2010, I should say, and 2017. We wanted to talk more about this, get reaction to today's announcement. So joining us is Tiana Sharifi, the owner of Sexual Exploitation Education. Tiana, thank you so much for joining us.
6: Thank you for having me, Simi.
2: First of all, what is your company about? What do you do?
6: Yes, so uh, my company raises awareness uh, and provides education and training on sexual exploitation, which is a very prevalent issue in our communities and yet uh, very underlooked. And so I provide education to uh, children, youth, and uh, parents and teachers. And then I provide training to nonprofit groups, law enforcement groups, um, and other. Th- service providers that would come across youth who are experiencing this issue.
2: Right, so the numbers that the public safety minister had there said that there's quite an increase. Is that something that you have also seen?
6: Yes, definitely. Um, we are seeing that kids as young as grade four are now having uh, complete ownership over their own online tools, whether it's iPads or smartphones, um, and uh, CyberTip.ca has seen an increase of 233% of uh Child pornography incidences over the past ten years, um, and I mean, forty-one percent of an increase just in the past year alone. So really? What do you tr- What yeah. do you attribute that to? Like, why? Um, I think it's two things. I think one is that kids are just having access to the internet at younger and younger ages, and I think the second thing is um, there's so many online platforms and social media platforms for youth and children to be on, and uh, it just it's just a, a bigger opportunity for predators to easily access youth.
2: Right. So is this something that parents like when you talk about needing more education, who needs yeah. more education here? Is is it the kids? Is it the parents?
6: Of course it's important to educate our children and youth on uh, on on online safety and how to use apps. But the reality is that um, you know, because the prefrontal cortex, which is the brain's rational part, is not developed yet. And so when they're making judgments, and they're thinking they're using their amygdala, which is the emotional part of their brain. And so while education for youth and children is important, I think even more important is the education for parents to understand that when they're giving their children access to the internet, and they're not monitoring it, they're allowing their kids to communicate with tens of thousands of predators globally.
2: Right, we just you think we just totally underestimate the reach of that once you give a child a computer about what could possibly happen.
6: Exactly. Yes, and I mean any social um, media tool, any online gaming tool, whatever is used most by kids, that's where most of the predators are going to be on. I mean, in 2009, uh, MySpace, which wasn't even being used often, uh, they got rid of 90,000 registered sex offenders, and uh, you know you can imagine. Yeah, so you can imagine with an app like Snapchat, for example, that has 180 million users, how many of those are predators.
2: Uh, how many are predators? Like, how can we tell?
6: Uh, well, I, I, in terms of numbers, it's very difficult to track. Um, but I can just say um, that Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram, and Kick—they um, were—they made up over fifty percent of the uh, child luring reports that were made on CyberTip.ca. So it's definitely being used.
2: I guess, have we not been hearing this message though, Tiana? Because you think about it, as long as we've had the internet, I feel like we've been talking about this issue. What's not getting through to people?
6: Good question. Uh, I think I think there are two things. I think one is that a lot of people are not aware of the issue of sexual exploitation. They just think that, uh, you know, online sex predator, and they, they think that their kids are smarter than to fall for those, tactics of deception whereas now we're seeing that the modern day predator is using tactics of seduction. Um, so I think that's definitely one of one of the the main reasons that we're not really talking about this topic. I think the second piece is that when it's happening online we don't yet so we don't tend to think that it's a, a prevalent issue
2: right so we think we're our kids are smarter than the heck and yet how can we think that about our kids at so much pressure because adults get sucked <laughs> in by this.
6: Oh yeah, that's definitely true that's definitely true. <laughs> Right. So then what what do we
2: need to, to do then? What How do you get that message through?
6: I think it's about educating uh, kids and, and not just educating kids through uh, organizations like my own, but parents need to be educated so that they can have conversations with their kids, so that uh, they can let their children know um, about the laws and their rights and luring tactics and warning signs and, uh, you know, for parents to be able to look into the apps that their kids are using and the games that their kids are using and educate themselves so that they know what tools they can use to help keep their kids safe. How
2: does it start? Like if people, if parents were kind of there over the shoulder checking on their kids, what should they be
6: looking for? Uh, Well, it's, I think they should be looking for something different than, um, they, they probably experience themselves as kids. Again, the modern day predator, they're not using tactics of deception, where they're trying to trick children, they're actually using tactics of seduction. So a lot of times these predators, they start conversations, and the conversations will include a lot of complimenting, some very casual ways of getting more information from the kid, um, maybe about their hobbies, their age, what they like to do. Uh, and then it turn slowly into promises of a better lifestyle or providing gifts. um, And then slowly they create a relationship with the child.
2: It's hard. I get for parents, like parents spend so much time online. So we just expect that it's okay for kids to do that too? Or do we just need to start (laughs) limiting how much time kids are spending online?
6: That's a great question. I mean, personally, I believe that uh, not only should there be a limit, but I think, uh, you know, one of the best ways to keep kids safe is to just shut off that Wi-Fi late at night and uh, not let them have those devices in the privacy of their own bedroom. (laughs) I
2: shouldn't be laughing, but I was was thinking about there's all those TV commercials now where they do that, right? Where they show you that you can do that. And I was sitting there watching TV with my daughter, who's now like 22 years old. And she looked at me and she said, Boy, I'm really glad that wasn't around when I was a kid. I said, yeah, because I would would have been using it. So we have to use these tools.
6: Definitely, yes. And I mean, you think about, you know, as a parent, I think uh, people get in the habit of telling their kids when they go to the park, you know, just be safe, don't talk to strangers, you know, don't. Um, don't communicate with somebody that you don't know. Um, but then, who's to say that that's not what they're doing when they have that device yeah. in the comfort of their own bedroom?
2: So, do you like the answer by the government? Do you think this is going to help?
6: I definitely think it it will help, um, specifically for the purpose of raising awareness that this is an issue and getting that conversation started. Uh, with regards to the way that the money is is being spread over the next three years, it's $4.9 million for research, public engagement, awareness and collaboration with organizations. So um, it is a smaller part of that budget that's going towards um, the awareness and education campaigns. But again, it makes a huge difference. And I'm so glad to see that the government is uh, taking responsibility and showing that they see that this is uh, an issue that we need to address.
2: All right, Tiana, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That's Tiana Sharifi, the owner of a company called Sexual Exploitation Education, where she works to provide education, training, consulting to youth, parents, teachers, counselors, you name it.